All right, so I'm going to start just by reading uh, verses 20 and 21, and then we're going to do half of chapter 6. But first we'll just do the, the first two verses, the last two verses of chapter 5. So Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. <clears throat> so as I read this, um, the first thing I was thinking about really was the, the purposes of the law, because there's several verses throughout, especially the New Testament, that say what the law really accomplished. And this is not an extensive list, but it's, there's quite a few things here. So I'm going to kind of whip through this pretty fast and comment on them as I go. You can try to keep up or you can just listen. Romans 7, verse 12, I'll start with. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I wanted to start with that one just to, you know, because as, as we just read, you know, like the, the trespass, or which one was that? The, to increase the trespass. There's a lot of like negative connotation with the law as we look at it. But I wanted to start with this one that says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So we got to remember the law is never, is not the problem. The problem is that people are unable to follow it, but the law is from God and the law is good and perfect and righteous and holy because it's from God and it, it shows how righteous God is. So I just wanted to start with that to keep that in mind. And then I wanted to hit Galatians Chapter 3, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the law was added because of transgressions. It wasn't as if there was no sin until the law. It was added more to show, yes, sin is happening. Um, and again, you know, it's not like the law magically made it so that, yes, now there's sin. It made it more that we can recognize sin for what it is. And then wanted to hit in my, in, my, in my line, just wanted to go back to Romans 3, verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's kind of just what we, what we talked about. And then the, the verse that I'm actually supposed to be preaching on here. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, you know, not only does it, does it uh, show that sin is happening? In a sense, it does increase the trespass because it, it shows it, but it also there's this nature in us that you can see it when a, with a kid. When you tell them not to do something, they want it. Um, and so in a very real sense, the law did increase the trespass, but it also increased it in just our knowledge of it, but even in how much we did sin. And back to Galatians. I hope this is interesting for you. I just so many times when I read these these verses that say, "And the law did this, and the law did that," I think to myself, "Boy, the law says a lot about the law." I wonder if I if there's a list of those. So I kind of made one. What number was it? 
Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. I'll, I'll end there. Um, sorry, my notes aren't incredibly organized at this point, but they do get better. Again, just this, this idea throughout the New Testament that the, the, by works of the law, no flesh is justified. And then in Romans 4, we, just, we don't have to turn there, but just how, how the law brings wrath. Um, and he does say, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. But he, at that point, when you look into it, he's not saying there's no sin. It's more just there's no breaking of the... Where there's no law, there's no breaking of the law. Um, then, so then uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. And this is where things start to turn a little bit. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... And then I'll, I'll stop at that point. So we do see that the law, it does have a shadow of the good things to come. It had a purpose besides just showing that sin is happening and to show the trespass. But it also had a shadow of the good things to come. We see in the law so many things pointing to Christ. And then back to Galatians. A lot of Galatians in this. Talks about the law a bit. So Galatians 3, I'm going to read verses 21 through 26. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So just an interesting way of putting it there, that the law imprisoned everything, almost like a guardian, until Christ could come. Uh, an interesting thought on that. I remember a class I took for Old Testament with the thought that the law was our guardian. That, and in a sense... You know, the same idea here that, that you need to be convicted of sin before you can really believe in Christ. Um, I had a professor in, in college, and he had us write a paper on whether, we not, or whether or not we thought Leviticus should be the first book that a person reads in the Bible. Like if somebody comes and says, I've, you know, I don't really know much about the Bible. And so the, the question was, should Leviticus be the first, you know, the one that you, you introduced to them? And everyone's like, oh, huh, well, that's an interesting thought. You know, and really the thought process behind it that we were supposed to argue was that before anybody, before you know anything, before you learn about Christ, you really got to learn about God's holiness and his law. And, you know, and we debated it and that was fun. Um, but I think the, 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 the thought is there, as, as, as we've said before, just that, there needs to be conviction. There needs to be understanding that God is holy, that, that we are falling short before, you know, it's for people to realize their need for Christ. Because I think a lot of times it's kind of thrust on people of like, you need Christ. And they're like, oh, okay. You know, instead, there really needs to be that conviction and that feeling that, you know, they're desperately wicked and desperately lost. And, and you know, how can I be saved type of, type of thing for, it, for uh, them to truly come to Christ. Then while we're still in Galatians, 
want to read chapter 2, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So again, this, this idea that, that righteousness can't come through the law, that the law does not provide a way for people to be saved. It merely shows um, how holy you have to be to be with God and shows that men, people, through their sinful nature, cannot be that holy. We just can't make it. And if, if it were possible for us to make it, it says, then Christ died for no purpose. If we were able to live, you know, live a holy life, it'd just be a, well, did he make it or not make it? But instead, nobody made it, and that's why Christ had to come. I'm almost done with this. Not the sermon, don't get excited. Romans 8, verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And I want to focus there on verse 3 of this. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So again, this is all, really the law, it shows the sin, and it points towards Christ, and, and it leads up to the New Testament showing that, that God has done what the law, through, through Christ, he's done what the law could not do. He, he provides a righteousness for people who are not righteous. Um, I've, I've heard the description in, uh, you know, of a, can you describe the Bible in four words? And, and the, the, the best one I've heard was, was just the, that the old, you know, two words for each, the Old Testament and the New Testament was, man can't, God can. I, I don't know, I always remember that. I thought that was pretty good. Um, and then the last one I'll reference, we don't have to turn there, is uh, Matthew 517, when Christ says, you know, he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. This idea that he's not getting rid of it. He's, he's paying the price that the law demands. And we're going to see as we go through this section, I'm going to get into the nuts and bolts of that a little bit more. So back to Romans 5, uh, uh, verses 20 and 21. So it says here, the law was to increase the trespass, and through that, grace abounded. And like I said, the law showed man how evil he was. And kind of a couple of pictures of this is like, you know, if you ever like get like a, a fridge or something and they say it's off white and like I look at it and I'm like, I don't know, is it white? And what do you got to do? You got to take something that's actually white, you know, and hold it up to it. And then you're like, oh yeah, that's off white. That is not white. You know, but if you're just looking at it by itself, it doesn't look that bad. And so in a sense, that was kind of the purpose of the law. Without a, without a standard, without that white piece of paper next to that off-white fridge, you know, some people can squint and be like, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. You know, but then when you put the law up there, when you put something that, that's a stark contrast, you're like, I do not achieve that level of purity. No. Um, but I had one more analogy that I think is probably more accurate because it's not like we're just a little off-white and, and, the, and the white paper makes us be like, oh yeah, I'm not quite perfect. Instead, I think it's more like how a jeweler will take a diamond and put it on a black cloth so that 
when you do that, all of a sudden, you know, if you're just holding the diamond up, you're like, oh yeah, that looks good. But then you put it on a black cloth, you're like, whoa, that really pops. Um, and I think that that's a more accurate description, first of all, of our sinfulness is more like the black cloth. And second of all, it really takes the focus in the, and it puts that on the diamond, on God's holiness. And, and it's not so much about the black cloth being a black cloth and not the diamond. It's more just the diamond is, you know, just so much beyond that it sticks out so much and it's so beautiful, way more than you would have realized had it not been contrasted with the black cloth. And so I think that's another purpose of the law is just to show, you know, really show how, how much of the next, at the next level God is. <clears throat> so verse 21 here, um, so that as sin reigned in death. So I'm going to go through a little bit here. So the result, you know, the wages of sin is death. So the result of sin is death. You sin, you die. You see that, in, you know, in, in uh, Genesis when Adam sinned, he, you know, he said, you will surely die. So up until Christ, death always won. Sin had always won. Um, nobody had ever been righteous. So everybody sinned, everybody died. Because everybody sinned, they were going to die. But Christ came and he was righteous. In life, he beat sin. He never sinned. And having never sinned, the end result could not be death. Because death was the result of sin, but he didn't sin. So he, the end result was not to be death. And it says, so grace also might reign through righteousness. So the result of righteousness is life. And so, so Christ was the only one who had earned life by not sinning. But he, he opted of his own accord to lay down his life, and he chose to die, switching places with us who had earned that death. Now, because he had never sinned, um, the grave could not hold him. He had never earned death. Death had no, uh, no claim on him because, like I said, he had never sinned. He'd never done anything that resulted in death spiritually. So even though he allowed himself to die... Death was not allowed to keep him because it had no claim on him. The same claim that it does have on all of us because we have sinned. And when we believe in him, his death counts for us as our payment for sin because he has a positive balance. He laid down his life to die and it wasn't, he didn't owe anything. So he's, he's in the plus, he's in the black, he can pay out. Whereas we, if we lay down our life to die, it's, that's justice. Let's see. Oh, I got one verse here too. I wanted to hit Romans 10, verse 4. So, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so I, I thought that was pretty cool because, you know, the end of the law is is death. But Christ took that death, and so that's the end of the law. But then we get into the, you know, so the law's ended on that death, but then when you raise again, the law's still ended, but there's life. Um, now, I also, one last thing on those last two verses. I want to look at the two verses in light of the first sin. Now, I know that it's talking about 
um, the law. But I just thought it was interesting to to look at it. We can, and I think it's you can get a little bit out of it. So now the law came in to increase the trespass. So if we view that as, excuse me, say say if we say the law is like the first command given to to Adam to not eat of the fruit. You know, it came in to increase the trespass. Now that's so. This is, I'll try not to speculate too much, but I think we can safely say that when God put the tree in the, in the, in the garden, he knew what would happen. You know, so, so the law comes in and it increases the, the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Um, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if we're thinking of that in terms of the first sin, when death, when death and sin is introduced, we also see that, a great, that grace is introduced and it abounds all the more. Um, and so that even as sin comes in and reigns in death, um, that grace comes in through, uh, through righteousness and through Jesus Christ. And so I think we have a partial answer, at least a partial answer, if not fairly full answer, um, to, you know, that, that initial question of like, well, why did God allow sin to enter the world? I mean, like I said, you get back to it. Of course, when he put the tree in there, he knew that, that man would sin, you know, so why did he let that happen? And here, I think we see a bit of the answer in that, you know, the trespass was increased, but grace was increased. And even more so, um, grace and righteousness uh, through Jesus Christ led to an eternal life that was, was better than the unfallen state. And so, like I said, I think it was just interesting to look at those two verses in light of that first sin as kind of an answer toward that question of, well, why did God allow sin to come into the world? Now, so right off that section, you know, with the, with the thought of, of the grace coming, you know, sin, sin is there, but grace abounds. Um, then, you know, it leads to this question, this potential argument against that of, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh, and this is an important question because it, it makes sense. You know, if, if our sin is paid for and it's through God's grace, then the more we sin, the more God's grace is shown. I'm not saying, you know, the, the argument doesn't necessarily go say, I mean, it kind of says here, but like, um, but it doesn't even necessarily mean to like, woohoo, go ahead and sin. It could even just mean like, should we not even really worry about sin? You know, if we sin, you know, just rejoice that Christ has overcome it. Um, and so that's the argument. You know, should we, are we continuing sin that grace may abound? In verse 2, by no means. Um, and in a sense, this is, this is a sensible argument. I mean, if you think about as parents, you know, if you always give grace, like, you'd be in trouble. Because if your child... Every time they misbehave, they know you're going to forego punishment. They're, you're going to get grace. Um, your child, what they'll learn is that they're not going to be punished and that they can do what they want. Um, or if a judge, you know, lets a man repeatedly go every time he commits a crime, like, that's not helping the matter. And so, so you look at this and you're like, yeah, I mean, that kind of makes sense. Like, this, this dichotomy here, I'm not sure about this, you know, more sin equals more grace. So, woohoo, you know. Um, but Paul gives an excellent answer in the next few verses. So first off, he starts, by no means, absolutely not. Um, and then said, uh, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Because when we were born again, having believed in Jesus, our relationship to sin changed. 
we have died to it. We simply should not live in it and should not desire it. Now, this doesn't mean that we won't sin. Of course we do. Uh, but I do think it means we ought to feel disgusted by sin. Uh, we ought to feel convicted when we do sin. We realize, and we ought to realize that we cannot be right again until we confess. Um, and I think when we ought to be free from the guilt of sin when we do confess. Because God is faithful and just to forgive. And we ought to be, our hearts ought to be changing. Hold on, I lost my part. Uh, and as, as the Holy Spirit works in us, our hearts ought to be changing. Um, and so that we shouldn't see a lifestyle of, of complacency and habitual sinning. Uh, if we have believed in Christ, we really have no, we, we no longer have any tie to sin. And its penalty is not for us. We're no longer under its yoke. We're no longer doomed to die because of it. Instead, as I said, we should hate sin for what it is, an offense against our beloved God who saved us, and we should have a great need and desire within us to pursue holiness. Verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Um, so this is, I believe we're talking about a spiritual baptism here. And think about like in Matthew 3, I guess I can read that real quick because otherwise I'd just butcher a paraphrase. So when uh, John the Baptist is talking and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And I think, you know, it's a pretty, I'll, I'll read another section in just a second, but the physical baptism represents what happens. It's a dramatization and acting out of the spiritual reality that's happening uh, in our hearts. And I would you want to hit Colossians chapter 2. Verses, oh, verse 11, I think. Or 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And now, so not to say, not to say that... Uh, that we shouldn't be physically baptized because I think it is commanded. But I do think that some people, like the Catholic Church is one, you know, that take it way too far to say you need to be baptized. That's actually what saves you. But it's, as I said, it's a picture of us being buried with Christ, dying to ourselves in sin, and then being raised to new life. And just getting dunked in water. Or I guess some people sprinkle, but I think this kind of sounds more like a dunking to me, but... <laughs> um, just being dunked in water and raised up is not what saves a person. The Holy Spirit coming into a person, convicting of them, convicting them, having them put to death their old self, and then having Christ um, raise them again as a new creation, even you know, in, the, in, their, you know, in their spiritual lives, being born again. Um, that's the picture of what baptism is. And that's the, that's, that's the really important thing to do. And as I said, I do think we should be physically baptized to proclaim to the world that this has happened to us. But 
the key here is that it happens inside of us. Let's see. Oh, I did have another passage here. Second Corinthians 5.17. You know, I write these, I just write these little, uh, the verses on the side. I don't write next to them what they are. So it's like a surprise for me when I get there. Oh, just therefore, if anyone, is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Probably should know that off the top of my head. I'll work on that. Um, so anyway, a believer's identity is now found in the death of Christ. We are baptized into his death, and the penalty we owe it is paid now. Sin, sin no longer has a hold of us. And just as Christ was raised, so we are raised to a newness of life. As I said, a believer is a new creation. Uh, as, as the Bible said, a believer is a new creation. So the old self has died, being, you know, being put to death, being baptized into that death with Christ, buried with him. And the new raised self is free from sin and will act differently than the old self. Now, kind of on that thought, I've heard, I heard a story before that I thought was pretty, pretty apt about how, you know, we should be different. Um, there was a guy that, that he, he was late to some meeting and he was really late and he finally, finally comes running in and they're like, you know, what, what happened? Like, we were waiting for you. What took you so long? And he goes, oh, I, uh, craziest thing. I was driving here on the highway and, and I got a flat tire. I'm like, oh, okay. And he's like, and I was changing the tire and I dropped one of the lug nuts and it rolled right out in the highway. And I didn't even think, I, look, I didn't even look. I walked, I, I crawled right out there after it. And next thing I know, I look up and there's a tractor trailer and boom, nailed me. They'd look at him like, you're lying. And he's like, how do you know that? Like, because you can't have an encounter with a tractor trailer and not be changed. And the same, same thing with God. You can't have an encounter with God and not be changed. Um, in fact, you'd be changed more than the tractor trailer would change that man. Let's see. So verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So if we if we're united with Christ, bound to Christ so tightly, even you know, picture the like grafted to him is almost what that word is. And so picture even like the vine and the branches, that he is our source and we are connected to him. What happens to him happens to us. Um, it kind of brings me back to Matthew sixteen, uh, 24 through 26, that's the part where Christ says, you know, to, to take up your cross and follow me for he who, who loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, let's see. And so basically, I think this is kind of getting at the point that if we give our lives to Christ, you know, uniting ourselves with him, even in his death, we will also be united with him in his resurrection, being so closely tied to him that what happens to him also happens to us. And this was late, so late last night. So if, if this is a terrible analogy, forgive me. But I kind of picture it as like, it doesn't make sense, at least in this life, a little bit. It's almost like tying yourself to a boulder, you know, uniting yourself with a boulder and having it thrown into the ocean. You're giving up your life just to be tied to that boulder. But we know, and this ocean is death, that that boulder gets picked up out of the ocean and taken to a new land that we could never get to otherwise, having nothing to do with us, but just that, that boulder is going to end up there because we are so tied to it, even when it went down into the depths of the ocean, when it comes out, we come out with it. Um, and so 
verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Uh, so this gets into, into what happens uh, to us. And as we, already, as we already went over, the result of sin is death. Uh, and we've all clearly sinned and earned death. And we know that Christ died to pay for our sins. But verse 6 makes it clear that when we take up our cross and lose ourselves for the sake of Christ, when we give up on our old lifestyle, unite our, uniting ourselves with Christ in his death, our body of sin, the tyranny that sin had over us, also come to death. And death is the end result of sin. So that sin that we had and the control it had over us dies at that point. It's over. It's at its end. Meanwhile, we are raised with Christ and have new life, and we are no longer in the clutches of sin because that sin has died. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So as far as sin is concerned, we have died. Therefore, sin is satisfied concerning us. Since we are united with Christ, and Christ died having not sinned, and not earning death of his own, his death counts for us. And since sin has resulted in death, as it must, it no longer can require or demand anything of us, just as a master can no longer require anything of his slave once the slave is dead. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. So, however, though we, we are dead in regards to sin, we have gone through this death, we have faith that we will live with Christ because of verse 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. We know that Christ was raised. You know, this is, this is a historical event with verified witnesses. He came back to life. And that proved that all this logic that I'm saying here that Paul was going through about how, how uh, you know, sin results in death, but, but really that, that Christ didn't sin, so death couldn't hold him. And the proof is in the pudding. He laid down his life and he came back. Death couldn't hold him. So this is how, this is how we know, because he did raise back to the life. Um, and since Christ was perfect, sin and death had no claim on him. And he, he chose to put his own life down, but then he chose to pick it back up again, and he came back. <clears throat> so, and, as, and as he's been saying, you know, if we unite ourselves to him in his death, we will also rise again in his victory over death. <clears throat> and then with Christ, you know, and having died once as is appointed to all men, he will never die again. His resurrection shows that death does not have any authority over him. He only died because he chose to die. Which is really interesting to think about. Just that at any point, right up until the last moment that he, that he gave up his breath, you know, he, could have, he could have completely healed himself. I mean, he, he literally had to choose, I'm going to die right now. Because he could have saved himself, he could have you know, done any type of miracle. Even right after he died, if he wanted to pop himself back up, he could have done that. But he chose... He literally chose, I will die right now. And then, you know, he had to, and then three days later he chose, and now I will come back. <clears throat> Verse 10, for the death he died, he, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. <clears throat> so, as we said, he chose to do this, to die as one who had died, who, to, he died as one who had sinned, 
even though he had not, once for all. So he did this for all who would believe in him, and his victory was attained in that one death. He completely settled all the accounts. So he died once for all, and he settled it once and for all. Now, so we've kind of focused a little bit on the dying part. Now let's look at the living part. It says here at the end of the verse, um, so where did I go? But the life he lives, he lives to God. His entire pursuit and purpose is for the completion of God's will and God's glory. Verse 11, so you, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Um, So, and now seeing ourselves as dead to sin, we must also see ourselves as alive to, alive to God as Christ is. That like, like him, our entire purpose, our entire pursuit ought to be for the completion of God's will and God's glory. And I, I thought this was a good note because I think sometimes, you know, I know I can get hung up a bit on the, you know, we see so much just the, the focus for ourselves is on, yes, I must crucify the old self. I must put the old self to death. But there's more to it than that. You know, there's the, the resurrection part. You know, I, I must be alive to God. You know, it's not just, I got I to gotta kill the sin, you know, put the old self to death. You know, like, that's half. Next half is, you know, he raises you again and you are alive to God with this pursuit and, and uh, purpose of completing God's will and following him, making him your new master. <clears throat> Let's see. And then, so just verse 11 ends with, in Christ Jesus, just a little reminder there, this death to sin and becoming alive to God is only possible in Christ. Because without Christ, our death, our putting ourselves to death, would just be what we deserve. End of story. And then also I wanted to look at, alive to God, um, just this thought that we were dead and he made us alive. So in sin, we were separated from God, alienated and hostile towards him. But in Christ's de- death, we were made alive to God, recovered into loving servants from the vile enemies we once were. Verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So this whole section here. Is, that, is Paul's answer to that, that question of what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And so this whole section he's kind of answering, he comes coming to the last few verses, kind of his conclusion on it. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Um, let's see. So as he's saying, sin ought not to reign in our mortal bodies. If it does, if sin is reigning in your mortal bodies, we have missed salvation because a big part of the salvation transaction is that it frees us from the tyrant of sin ruling over our lives. We have died to sin through Christ, so we are no longer sin subjects and we are not under its authority. And then as he... Yeah, so there, let not uh, sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So therefore, uh, do not let sin command you. Um, it, it ought to be when sin tries to get a hold of you, it's like the Queen of England telling you as an American some, you know, a command. She really has no authority over you um, and no real main, means to make you obey her. It's the same with sin. It has no authority over us. 
and we must not let it rain over us as if it did. Interesting little story here. I'll try to be quick. I was reading, and it was a tale of two brothers in, uh, in the 14th century. They were, the older one was a duke. The, the younger one was, uh, I guess, a little bit more likable, um, smarter, and eventually led a revolt. And so they were fighting for this duchy, and the younger one came out ahead. Now, the older one, his name was Reynold, but they called him Crassus, which means fat, because he was a huge, obese man. Um, and the younger, one, the younger brother, Edward, won. But he didn't put his older brother to death. He actually came up with a really interesting punishment for him. He let him stay in the castle, but he built a room for him that had a, a normal-sized door, like near normal, a little smaller maybe, didn't bar the windows or anything, and said, didn't lock the doors or anything, and said, you're free to leave whenever you want to. And if you walk out that door, I'll restore the whole duchy to you. But his older brother couldn't fit through the door. And, and his younger, the younger brother would bring him all the finest delicacies every day. You know, great food, and let, it, let his older brother feast every day. All the older brother had to do was just go on a diet a little bit. Could have walked through the door and been the duke. Uh, the true story. And, but so, so the thing here, though, is a lot of times this is like us with sin. We're free. I mean, oh, yeah, I did like the quote at the end. Um, people would ask the younger brother, you know, like, isn't it cruel what you've done, done to your brother? And he, said, and he would say, quote, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he wills. And same picture with sin. We ought not to be prisoners to sin. However, sometimes Christians still let it have authority over it. They just can't help ourselves. Um, and it, it basically, because of ourselves, we keep ourselves trapped. We still act like sin is in command of us, even though through, through the work of Christ, we ought to be able to, we, we are technically free. I just thought, I thought that was a really interesting story that had a, had a good, uh, good point to it. So, am I in verse 13 yet? I think so. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So instead of sin being our master, um, and our life, our efforts, our skills, our time, our money, our breath need to be devoted to our new master. Um, Side note here. So we were definitely made to have a master. Um, and we will, always, uh, we will always make, we always put a master in charge of ourselves. It was just we were made to worship God. And so no matter what, we will always find ourselves worshiping something. We will always put something up there as our master. And one of my favorite quotes is that, is that the freest man on the face of the earth is a slave to the perfect master. Um, anyway, so we need to remember that God has has brought us from the realm of death to the realm of life and act accordingly as a member of the realm of life. So again, we still sin, um, but we can't let it master us. We must hate sin. We must fight it. We must be convicted of it. We must confess it, and we must move on from it after confessing it because through Christ, our sin does not have any power over us. Once confessed, we are right with God again in the realm of life. There may be consequences for sins, in this life, but spiritually and eternally speaking, that sin has already been paid for and need not be brought up again. 
No, so one one thing that I will say. I guess I can skip that part. I'm running over. I do think we should, uh, like, especially for me, I think should be thinking and focusing more on what it looks like to present ourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. Um, that a lot of times I think it's easy to think more about, you know, just trying not to do the wrong thing instead of viewing it as more like a positive thing is everything I do, um, how can I present it as an instrument of righteousness? How I raise my kids and my conversations and interactions with anybody in my free time, how do I spend that? In my thoughts, in my daydreams, um, I should have an insatiable desire and passion to be an instrument of God's, that everything should be going towards that. Kind of like the example of an Olympian, you know, that trains day and night. Everything they do is, is geared towards this one thing. And that's how we should be towards following God. Um, and I think this is pretty important because it's, it's, you know, just telling yourself not to sin, it, that won't help you to not sin. It's like that thing of like, where they say, you know, to try, it's like trying not to think of a pink elephant by telling yourself to not think of a pink elephant. You know, something like, don't think of a pink elephant. Don't think of a pink elephant. Like, it's just, it doesn't work. You need to replace it with something. And God replaces sin as our master, and he replaces our old purpose of fulfilling our selfish desires with a new purpose to live out um, for his glory. Um, so verse 14, Paul concludes this argument right here with, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Um, Spurgeon described this verse as a test for sin will have no dominion over you one is a test you know for our claim to be Christians does sin have dominion over you two is a promise of victory sin you know that that sin that that, that Christ will win that you will win if Christ is in you and the three an encouragement similar with the promise is just you know keep, you know take hope and strength into this battle because there is victory coming that sin will not have dominion over over you. Um, Why well, I cannot read what I write. So that the end uh, end off was since you are not under law but under grace. <clears throat> Again, just the same thing he's been emphasizing a lot. We can never work our way to salvation or earn it. Uh, the law only shows the trespass, and grace provide grace through Christ provides both the freedom and the power to live over sin. And with that, I will close. Father, thank you uh, for this day. Thank you for all our mothers. We thank you for, for your word. We pray that you help us to understand it, that you, you get it within our hearts. We pray that you, you help us to live in victory over sin. Um, give us that victory and that, that hope as we continue to, to do battle. Help us to, to live lives um, as presenting ourselves as instruments for your righteousness. And we thank you for your son and his sacrifice for us uh, so that we can, we can die to sin and, and yet through him be raised to a new life. And we just thank you for, for your love for us and all this grace that we could never, never deserve and help us to, to love you and to, to pursue you above all things. Amen.